You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospay. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospay and Paul Gamble. We are very happy to have a blockchain episode for you today. We talk a lot about the environment and climate science, but we wanted to talk about cryptocurrency and blockchain applications. And when most people think about it, they think about money. And Andreas Antonopoulos, one of the luminaries of the space, has a line about how money is just the first application of blockchain. But there's a lot of other things that are going on that are really quite interesting, ways you can incentivize new behaviors and platforms that have not existed heretofore. So we're going to talk about some of the uh, ways you might not expect blockchain to be used, but are now being used. Indeed. Sitting across from us is Alex Ortiz. Alex is the chief blockchain evangelist of Life ID, which is a blockchain company here in sweet Seattle. I had the pleasure of getting a request on LinkedIn from Alex on December 1st, 2017. Hey, Christoph, see you're also into blockchain. Would be nice to connect. Also, I started a Blockchain Seattle Slack group to help build up our community and foster relationships. Would you like me to invite you? Did for... you just say no? <laughs> no thanks. I don't care for this. A- anyone who knows me, I would be like, hell yes, I've been looking for this thing. Like, finally. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know. I mean, maybe there are other blockchain Seattle Slack groups. But no, this is the one, the only, probably the best place for anyone in Seattle who's looking to really connect and have meaningful relationships with people who are not just trying to crypto speculate, but like actually use this technology to change the world. And a note about Alex, once I added him on LinkedIn, I noticed he was doing this thing, which is super cool. He was meeting people and then sharing what he was learning on LinkedIn, tagging those people and sharing those learnings. And I was like, wow, he's onto something. He knows that there's a long journey ahead and he has put himself on it. So And he's blushing very deeply now. <laughs> oh, sure so, so without any further ado, Alex, we like we like to start with everyone's story and we want you to be able to tell your own. So how did this all get going? Awesome. Well, Christoph and Ross, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on your show and inviting me to share a little bit of my journey and my story and and also allow me to connect to the mission that Nori has. Pretty exciting stuff. So August 22nd, that's my genesis block, if you will, my learning journey. I read this article in Forbes. It was about Hyperledger fabric being used by Walmart and a bunch of others to track mangoes. I'm like, what is what is this word? What is this blockchain thing? And I read the article and I fired off an email to a bunch of employees at the company I was at at the time and said, have any of you heard about this blockchain thing? We have to talk. And, you know, over the next few weeks, I just entered this period of learning, listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast with Nick Zabo and Naval oh, Ravikant. Oh, so I've good. recommended that one before. Because I was at the inception of my journey, I'd have to stop every 10 minutes because it was brain overload. You know, what is this blockchain thing? What are they talking about? The more I got into it, the more I realized I have to connect to this space. So I went to a few meetups around town and I very quickly realized, okay, investing in the crypto side of this isn't going to be my entry point. So how do I find other people like me throughout Seattle that just want to exchange ideas? And that that's when I started this Slack group. And I started feverishly looking for others throughout the city through LinkedIn, Meetup, and elsewhere that had anything about blockchain on their profiles. And I would send them a message like this and invite them and say, hey, introduce yourself in the introductions channel. What about blockchain are you interested in? Let me try to connect you with others. And that group grew to several hundred people. Is that like uh, what you did with the carbon removal Seattle, Paul? 
You're just like, I need to find everyone I can who cares about it. Yeah, it was just a way to plant a flag and say, like, here I am. Come join me and let's talk about this thing and let's make a thing that doesn't exist before and make it now. That's pretty much how you went about your learning here, Alex. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, notice that blockchain is this incredibly community-driven effort, right? And that you guys are on the side of decarbonizing the atmosphere. My team's on the side of making it easier for people to send private information securely and prove facts about themselves in a very data-minimized way, which opens up a lot of cool scenarios we'll get into later. But in all of our little rabbit holes, community is king, right? You cannot build an ecosystem without community. And I would say that the whole reaching out to others in the Seattle ecosystem almost like taught me a really valuable lesson that I'm now employing in my approach with the Life ID team, which is building an ecosystem requires a lot of players, a lot of contributors, a lot of collaborators, a ton of community. So that Slack was fantastic. And then I got laid off. It's now mid-December. I got laid off from the company I was working at. And I took about a week to get really clear. What is my why? You know, Simon Sinek, start with why. And how many times has this come up on this podcast? <laughs> That's literally how I got involved in carbon removal and how Nori came about is because of that Simon Sinek TED Talk. Yeah. So what happened? I had a small business that I had been working on. It was a subscription box of fun things to do when you're high. And I realized I was putting stuff in a box and sending that to people. And that wasn't really fulfilling. When I was going through the process of selling it, someone reached out to me and said, hey, man, you got to watch this TED Talk because you need to figure out like what it is that you're going to do next. And I watched it and started thinking about it and realizing that like I want to work on something big, but mostly I want to work on something that's going to attract a lot of other really talented and smart people to work on it. Well, it seems like climate change is sort of an obvious choice for that. And that's how everything that we're doing with Nori came about. That's amazing. Are you also one of the original members and co-founders? Yeah. Awesome. So... I think it's so interesting to hear people's origin stories and how taking that time to get really clear on what your purpose is. And I don't know if you guys are driven by legacy, if you guys are driven by, I don't want to say compensation, but just, you know, doing good while you're also doing well for yourselves or what. But I think we're here to leave the world a little better than we found it. And I think fundamentally technology is just a tool. It's a tool to teach. It's a tool to heal. And it's a tool to free. In your case, it's quite literally, how do we free the atmosphere of carbon, right? And in the case of the Life ID team, it's how do we free people from this? Like to access online services, I have to give up my privacy. It shouldn't have to be all or none. But for me, you know, blockchain represents like personal freedom because I'm learning about how technologies that are emerging work. I'm learning how those technologies can actually be employed for good. And, you know, I don't know, having taken the time to get really clear on my why and using tech for good enabled me then to do what I did next, which is have a lot of coffee with a lot of people and do a ton of learning through the eyes of others and eventually find that there was a team here in Seattle that was working on a really cool project where I wanted to plant my flag. When can we meet the them? Team. Oh, okay. Yeah. Tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow, yeah. Tomorrow. <laughs> I thought you were setting up Nori there. I, like, <laughs> I got greedy for the compliment. I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> awesome. So before we go into Life ID, which is an awesome project, and we're looking forward to learning more about that on the podcast, most of our listeners come from the climate space, and they found this podcast because it's reversing climate change. And hopefully so, they made it this far on this podcast. I hope they made it this far and I hope they understand what blockchain is. But for those who don't, in as simple terms as possible, no jargon, uh-huh. and we'll call you out on jargon too. Okay. What is blockchain? So I was thinking about this. It's my dad's birthday on the 4th, actually. It reminded me of my grandma, who's thankfully still around, 
sometimes people say, ah, oh, how would you explain this to your uncle? How would you explain blockchain to your uncle or your sister, your brother, or your grandma? And I thought, well, my grandmother lives in the Dominican Republic. So if I said this to her, I'd say, I'm using computers to send you money to your phone so that you can then go buy groceries without stopping at the bank first. That might be one way that I would begin. The behind the scenes of how all that would be possible almost undoubtedly would require some sort of blockchain technology. Did you get the coherent little definition that you wanted for the crew here listening? <sighs> Let me keep pushing. So we can move data and money more efficiently on the internet. You want to talk about trust Absolutely. for a second? Yeah, yeah. Let's get into that. Hey, take <laughs> us there. Because I was about to say, like, why should I care? Why is this such a big deal? Why is the hype around blockchain really happening? What gets people so excited here? So let's say, like, I've met you a few times. I trust you. I don't trust you completely, right? Because I, I haven't told you everything about my life and myself, right? The longer I interact with you, the more trust I place in you, maybe the more I disclose about myself to you, right? And we can come back to later how self-sovereign identity technologies kind of enable this sort of data minimized, selective disclosure, privacy by design flow to how we engage others. But trust is really critical to how we do business, how we interact, our bank accounts. And I feel like one way to explain blockchain is to say, we have grown potentially overly reliant on trusting certain institutions and organizations to be referees, centralized referees, if you will. How do we use computers in a way that enables us to have transparent records, right, about things like financial transactions or identity transactions or other types of transactions, but a transparency that we can all rely on as the source of trust. And so you think about Amber, right? You think about a fly trapped in Amber. I think this is something I heard in that. Dino DNA. Yeah, <laughs> Dino DNA. You heard, where'd you hear this? I've heard this, I think probably from Antonopoulos or someone else. I've heard this one before. Like layers of Amber, layers of trust. But I think, you know, you have a transaction that's trapped in Amber for all time, for all to see. And that's what a blockchain-based system enables if used the right way. And if you've got that, and if all of us in the room can see the same you know, fly trapped in amber and none of us can touch that fly for all time, that frees us up to just do business in new ways. Yeah, so, and you're, you're not relying on a central bank or a visa. I mean, how many of these organizations get hacked every year too? I think every few months there's some big uh, hack that exposes a bunch of private data. And this is something that you don't have a centralized point of hacking for blockchains. It's that distributed. Would you say that's one of the main advantages here? Yeah. So I guess in the world that the Life ID team is playing in, and we're trying to build a platform where, let's say, you're Google, you're Facebook, and you're LinkedIn. And currently, I have three different accounts, one for each of you. And I have to prove that I'm me with the username and password each time I log in, or even, you know, with I have the app, it remembers it's me and all that stuff. But imagine if I had a two-way secure channel that only worked with you and a separate channel that only worked with you and a separate channel that only worked with you, right? And so that's one way of considering how do you do trust or how do you enable username and passwordless interaction, if that makes much sense. That does. And I want to talk more about Life ID, but I also want to pull both Life ID and Nori out of it for a second, because yep. you've been going around the world, learning about blockchain, learning about blockchain use cases. And I think use cases are a really good way for people to 
Grok, what is this technology? How is it going to apply in our everyday lives? Mm-hmm. So, Besides money too, right? Besides, besides money. Yes. So give us some of your favorite use cases or a favorite. Yeah. Okay. So professionally, you know, somewhat selfishly, professionally, I hear that MIT and certainly Brigham Young University, they've started to offer their students the option of getting their like proof of graduation uh, with a self-sovereign <laughs> identity-based tech, right? And so instead of getting this paper diploma, you can get this diploma on the blockchain, if you will. The University of Nicosia does that too. Do Do, they? Yeah, I did their like free MOOC introduction to digital currencies and I have a hash I can direct people to and they can verify that this like diploma is the exact same thing. Every pixel is the same. That's right. So I don't know if they're doing it differently over at BYU or whatever, but that's great. Yeah. And the back end of how that all works might be different depending on the self-sovereign identity network they're using. I think that that's cool, right? Because I want us to get to a world where I can prove I'm over 21 without showing you my date of birth right? Or you can prove that you have a business in active standing with the state. Or if you're renting an apartment and they say, well, we need to see your salary in order to pre-qualify you because you need to make 3x or more over the monthly rent, that you don't have to show them a W-2 with all the other info that's on there, right? So I love the use of self-sovereign identity tech and blockchain and cryptography for, you know, proving credentials about yourself. Personally, I love what the United Nations has been doing using an Ethereum private network to enable refugees in some of their camps to buy groceries on site using their iris scans and, you know, using their own internal United Nations payment network, which is awesome because that's reducing their costs and it's enabling them to more easily disperse these funds, right, to individuals that need them. And then the inner geek in me looks forward to a time when we have our devices being able to manage their own private keys and actually, you know, maybe send money. Like I can say to my phone, you know, send this much money in this denomination to my grandma or send Christoph and Ross this email and the phone itself can act on my behalf. And there are some probably some good reasons why you'd want to use blockchain as part of those use cases. So how about all of you? Like what use cases are most getting you stoked? You want to you plug one of our house favorites? this doesn't sound anywhere near as beneficial to the human race or towards the un sustainable development goals however ross and i and christoph too he's come along are big fans of a company called funfair that is enabling provably fair casino gaming on the blockchain so their token is used for placing bets and they were the first company to publish working state channels on Ethereum. And it's provably fair. So right now in casinos, you have state regulators. Like if you're talking about like a Las Vegas casino, you have state regulators that go and inspect every single slot machine and video poker machine and so on to ensure that it's actually operating the code that's been approved by the regulators so that when players play on there, they're getting payouts proportionate to the amount that they're supposed to. And then Funfair makes that possible to prove in an open source way so that anyone can see that the game that they played paid out the way that that it should have. And then there's not some rake that the casino is taking. Yeah, some of these more vicey activities often lead tech development. But there's other projects too. One of my old friends, I actually reconnected with her recently, started a project called BitNation. Do you know them? BitNation. They also work in the self-sovereign identity. Do you know about Estonia's e-residency program? I've heard a little bit about it. Cool. I did that last year. I have not seen any of the benefit from it, but I wanted to support it because basically you can digitally sign documents and receive everything through some version. I think it's some sort of cryptography that's very similar. 
I'm not a very good advocate for it. All I know is Ross made me and Kristoff go to the Estonian consulate with him in New York and sit in a <laughs> waiting room with beautiful pictures of Estonia while he answered some weird questions. With an incredibly memorable taxi ride. That's true. That was. We, oh, yeah. we spoke with a guy who was, he was like a day trader or something. And then we started talking about crypto and he immediately got it. He's like, oh man, I need to get into this. He's like a junk bond trader from the <laughs> 80s or something like that. <laughs> uh, screaming New York City. <laughs> Yeah, it's a way of being able to manage an online persona anywhere in the world securely, especially if you're not an EU resident, you're able to quasi incorporate over there. So if you had a business in the States, but you want to do business in the EU, you use their services to like quasi become a resident of Estonia for that purpose. So I really like them. But yeah, BitNation is basically trying to outmode the nation state as a way of uh, future governance. And that's by people controlling their own identities and by agreements being voluntarily entered into, et cetera. So that one's pretty far out. I really like Sweetbridge as well. Oh, yeah. Sweetbridge is sort of hard to describe because they're trying to put literally the entire global economy on the blockchain. But think about it like if you are a corporation and you need to get financing for some new line of business that you want to pursue, you have a few options. You can get investors, you can use your own revenues, you could go to the capital markets, you can borrow and so on. But you are restricted by size and the lenders that are you're able to work with. It depends on the current state of the capital markets. Are you borrowing at a high rate or at a low rate? And Sweetbridge is trying to make it possible to securitize every single asset on earth so that if you are a smaller organization and you don't have access to these crazy financial tools, you could borrow against yourself because you have assets that you can put on the blockchain and prove in that way that these are collateral against your own loan. Even like accounts receivable could like... Yeah, yeah. We're talking like massive amounts of new possibilities for derivatives and so on that can really enable a lot more economic value and growth creation. That's fascinating. You have one for us too? We steal all the easy ones. I had two that were going through my mind. One of them, for better or worse, crypto kitties. You know, I think that showing that you have the provenance of art that then propagates and moves out into the world, I think is kind of fascinating. And while it's kind of like Beanie Babies and you're like, man, this is useless. Beanie Babies showed a number of great innovations. It showed that people care about collectibles. And now here we have digital collectibles. And I think the way that CryptoKitties has opened the door for more digital provenance is going to be pretty exciting. I spent an entire summer in Phoenix one year as a kid driving around to different McDonald's restaurants with my mom so that we could get Happy Meals with the little mini Beanie Babies that they would provide. Wow. Uh, we were big on the Beanie Babies, my family. Paul's yeah. a serial obsessive. So whatever, whatever <laughs> he's into, there's, there's no break on it. So Alex, uh, you've been attending many conferences. We were right before you came on the show kind of joking that a week in the blockchain world is like a year and it's just happening so quickly. This whole space is evolving incredibly quickly and you have had a really interesting seat to view it all, even though it's only been since August. How have you seen this space evolve? Since August, you're a seasoned veteran at this point. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, I was at a conference recently and, and someone described it as, we're all trying to find the light switch, right? And I thought, that's a nice metaphor, right? Because there are no experts yet, right, in this space. Like, we're all learning as we're going. Some of this technology hasn't existed yet, or all the pieces that were needed to bring about some of these ideas now are sort of becoming available and whole. So in the last year, a couple of things. One, I feel like there's more community, right? So here in Seattle alone, there's over 30 blockchain-based projects 
that either have a founder here or have a C-level exec here, have some connection to Seattle. Although I don't know what the number would have been exactly 12 months ago, it's certainly a number that I am excited to see going up. So you've got obviously you guys, Nori here, the Life ID team, Stably Labs, Blockcelerate, CryptoSlate. I mean, these are just- Bitrex is here. Bitrex is here. Wasn't MakerDAO is here for, right? No? No. <laughs> They're all distributed. Oh, but one of them was here. <laughs> this is the least generous producer of all time. One of their former community manager, former, is here. Yeah, we're probably going uh, to have some, some of the MetaMask team are here. Yeah, yeah. The founder of MetaMask is here, Kumabis. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome to see the community from the standpoint of blockchain-based projects growing and also its community in terms of events, right? There are now days when you can't go to all the blockchain-based meetups or events, right? In Seattle? In Seattle, oh, yeah. Man. How come we don't get more of these? We got to get these invites. Well, Russ, you just moved here like two weeks ago, man. <laughs> and you were invited to one that you did not go to. Oh, I'm, I'm bad. <laughs> I'm bad. I got scolded. I, I thought you guys were just working so hard that, you know, you get your heads ducked. Also out. that, yeah, that was that's my excuse. <laughs> so in terms of conferences, for example, on August 9th, there's Token Forum. That's Jonathan Blanco's effort. And in September, there's a Seattle Blockchain Conference by Chris Jones and the Dragon Chain team. And so, you know, more community in the last year. The second thing I'll say is I feel like there are better resources for newcomers in blockchain, right? So I remember when I started in August learning about this stuff, it was like, okay, which podcast do I listen to? Are there any books around this? Is there any sort of certification out there? And IBM has this two-hour blockchain essentials thing that I went through. And it started to give me the beginnings of a tree trunk for understanding like traceability and provenance and immutability and the value props of blockchains. Now there's Blockchain Training Alliance and a new book just hit Amazon called hands-on blockchain development with Hyperledger and got some good reviews. So more resources. And the third thing I'd say is just more specialization. I feel like there are a hundred rabbit holes that one can go down. I'm in the self-sovereign identity one. And there's all these companies working in this space or standards bodies. There's, you know, enough to sink your teeth into year round identity based conferences. And I mean, what's it like for all of you in the ecosystem you play? Do you feel like it's a similarly deep rabbit hole? For the environmental space, yeah. yeah, there's no way you could go to everything and, and you get to prioritize pretty hard. It's a tough one. Yeah. You keep talking about self-sovereign identity and I'm sure people are like, what does that mean? <laughs> what is life ID? And I also want to know, I, re- I read, I was browsing around on the website and I think I have a good idea, but I'll play dumb for you. All right. So over the last 25 years of internet use, I saw something that in 95, the percentage of Americans that were using the internet was something like 16%. And so 95, were we in high school at the time? Uh, I was in first grade. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I would have been, I think, in middle school by that point, right? America Online had just hit the streets, or not the streets, the computers. Google wasn't a thing, right? Facebook wasn't a thing. By 05, when Gmail was a thing and Facebook was a thing, I think the percentage I read was 66% of Americans, right, or something. And now by 2015, that number had climbed to almost 90%. So the last 25 years of internet-based identity, I think we've all sort of gotten used to usernames, passwords, giving companies information about ourselves. You know, you go sign up for a, a new Gmail account, for instance, and it asks you first name, last name, you know, your desired username and password, you know, if you're male, if you're female, date of birth, I believe, all this stuff. And we've, I think, just gotten used to that. 
right? It's like to access internet services, we give up private information about ourselves. And the platform we're building, that's a self-sovereign identity technology, I think will enable the best of both worlds. You still gain access to online-based services, but you get to disclose a lot less about yourself, just the bare minimum. And as trust builds over time, you're able to decide, like we do in in the analog world, what we share about ourselves. In the internet world, over time, selective disclosure will be possible. Data minimization, being able to say, I can prove to you that I'm over 21, and that's all you need to know. And here's this credential coming from the DMV that attests to that fact. I can prove that I make over a certain amount of money, and here's a credential by my employer that I can show a landlord without disclosing my salary. I can prove that I'm an MIT graduate or University of Miami graduate and that I have a degree in neuroscience without giving you anything else. If I'm a newly licensed doctor and I want to start working right away, not having to wait 90 days for the process of verification, being able to get that down to one because I'm using a self-sovereign identity technology that enables me to transfer this cryptographically verifiable and secure credential issued by a trusted third party to whomever is verifying that information. These are the sorts of use cases that self-sovereign identity technology enable, and we're, we're really excited. It's my turn to play dumb. <laughs> what if I get locked out of my account or like it's so secure that I can't even access it? Or is there some part where someone can steal my identity and pretend to be me and use a self-sovereign identity platform to become Christoph Jospe, but like, no, I'm Christoph Jospe, not that other person, but they've somehow hacked me and all the digital footprint. What protection do we have? Yeah, I mean, I would answer that by saying that I think the way identity is done online now creates possibilities like that in a way that won't be possible in the future. So if I have a two-way cryptographically secure channel between myself and say my email provider. And that channel or that pipeline only works for me, only from my laptop or only from my iPhone and their service. Like what's there really to hack? If someone hacks into that channel, even if they could, and remember now there's not a username or password being used to authenticate. And we're moving in a direction where all my private information that currently kind of resides on those company servers in the future, that might not be the case. Like I have my device, I have these credentials, I'm over 21 credential, my I make over a certain amount of credential, my proof of graduation credential, and they're stored locally on my device, right? And all I'm using that two-way channel for is to transfer that kind of info. And even if someone were able to impersonate me or get into that channel, they wouldn't be able to steal my data and they wouldn't be able to use any of that in any other channel with any other online service provider or company that I do business with. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's I think it'll take some time to really think through the UX of all this stuff and then to be able to answer your question about why that won't even be possible down the road. UX, that's user experience. I just got a glimpse of hope that like it's so easy to steal my social security number. I'm sure a whole bunch of parties already done it. it. Yeah. Yeah. You stole his social security <laughs> number. You, I, <laughs> we could probably find it for like five dollars in about ten minutes, right? So now. is the way that self-sovereign identity gonna play out where over time social security numbers become obsolete? Oh, I can't answer that, right? Like we're moving in a wor- towards a world where you still need 
trusted third parties who issue credentials of some sort, right? Like you're born, you get a birth certificate. In the world of the future, like you're still going to get a birth certificate. It'll just be cryptographically secured, signed presumably by your parents and the hospital staff and all that. You know, that being a public record, for example, in that case, you know, there's something anchored to a blockchain somewhere that enables looking up that, oh, this birth certificate was really issued by a real entity. It is legit from a data integrity standpoint, is valid and so forth. I don't know enough about the world of numbers like social security numbers, but I presume, you know, you would just have like the Department of State issues these cryptographically verifiable credentials that like you are indeed a citizen, right? Yeah, I don't know what scenarios we would... It's all good. It's just a thought. So let me take it in a slightly different direction. Nori's building a blockchain application. Yep. Life ID's building a blockchain application. Yep. Water balloon fight? <laughs> Water balloon thinking? fight. No, yeah, that's... Nerf guns. Nerf guns. <laughs> There's an ecosystem here that needs to emerge. What are the touch points of where you think an ecosystem like this could be most effective? Yeah. So we think of ecosystems in terms of holders of credentials, right? So my I'm over 21 credential or I'm Nori employee credential or I'm a Life ID team member credential or whatnot. And then you've got the issuers of those credentials. And then you've got verifiers, right? So let's say you want to prove you're a doctor, you're medically licensed. So the issuer would be the medical licensing board. You are the holder of that credential. You're the doctor and you have it on your phone. And I could present this. And the verifier would be like the hospital. Actually, I was thinking over this over the weekend. Let's say we're in a pre-television world and we want to jump ahead to a world of Netflix. You would need a television. You would need internet service. You would need a media player to download Netflix on. You would need content producers, so there's programming on there. You would need a distributor like Netflix, and you would need viewers, people to actually watch the programming. And so the ecosystem becomes all the manufacturers of TVs, content providers, companies like Netflix, internet service providers, and so forth. And so from an ecosystem standpoint, I could see, let's say... If Nori's using a self-sovereign identity platform, your users are using it as well to log into Nori's website without usernames and passwords. They could be part of that ecosystem. You're a business, right? So if you need to prove that your business is an active standing, right? So you need entities that can vouch for that. If you're trying to open up a bank account, right, as Nori Inc., right, being able to reuse maybe KYC from some previous bank account you've opened. Know your customer. Know your customer. And so we're still trying to figure out what's, say, a minimum viable ecosystem for a particular use case. So I'd have to learn more about you guys' team to... To pitch us on it on on the air. (laughs) (laughs) KYC oftentimes freaks people out a little bit in this space because, you know, philosophically, there's a a strong tendency going back to the early, like, cyberpunk days, too, of, uh, yeah, you control your data. And everything is at least pseudonymous, if not fully anonymous. So this idea of identifying yourself to third parties like banks and governments really spooks people. But I guess if you could somehow share a digital signature or something that proves that you are who you say you are without handing it over to this. I mean, there's lots of crypto vendors who are offering KYC, AML, Know Your Customer, anti-money laundering services. Sure, some of them will be hacked because people want to know who holds a lot of cryptocurrency. That's a valuable piece of information. So wouldn't you rather just like give them a little signature like off of Life ID? If you do like five token launches, you have five different vendors who have your information. That's a lot of risk spread around there. Wouldn't you rather just do it your way? Is that something that you guys are looking into? 
Well, so keep in mind the Life ID platform, it's like infrastructure, right? It's like plumbing. It's enabling the transfer of cryptographically secure, verifiable information that users get to choose to disclose to others, to verifiers. And so presumably the KYC software vendor of the future that wants to leverage the value of self-sovereign identity tech could come along and build their offering on top of the Life ID platform and then potentially users could reuse KYC checks that are, you know, known to be valid and all that kind of stuff. I want to distinguish, we're not a product company, we're a platform company, and mm. we're building an open source platform for identity. Now, do you have any applications that are being built currently? Are you that far along? Where are you in the building right now? We're fairly early. So we are building a variety of components that will, will enable all this. So that means like our OpenID Connect service to bridge to the way that a lot of authentication happens in the modern world. We're building out smart contracts. We are going to be releasing on our chain, but we also want to make sure that regardless of which underlying blockchain a user is using for certain services, their life ID will work on there. So that means building out smart contracts for any open public permissionless ledger is going to be key. We do have several partnerships already that have been announced with Digital Town, with Resonate and others, and that list will grow over time. What are they building? I'm not familiar at the top of my head. Are they partnering to build products on top of your platform? So initially, it'll be to leverage the Life ID platform as a way to either onboard their users or enable their users to authenticate into their services. But over time, we're going to actually build out the infrastructure of, you know, zero knowledge proofs as a way for individuals to prove things about themselves. Like, you know, I'm over 21 without showing you my date of birth and so forth. But Resonate is a co-op for artists and listeners to be connected more directly with fewer intermediaries. And the Digital Town team is building out a local peer-to-peer. -peer. I've, I've heard it described as sort of like Amazon for a city, if you will. You know? And so connecting merchants and residents and visitors to cities more directly. Oh, I see. Yeah, I was on a, a friend of mine's uh, podcast there in that band Congos. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they were talking about all the intermediaries that they have to go through to get paid. And oftentimes it takes like a year and everyone takes their cut. And it's like, I wrote this song. I, I ended up, I was in the studio, saw like a nickel off of it. Uh -huh. and you're like, so that's cool. I'm happy to hear people are working on that. That's a good uh, disintermediation, as they say, application there. Well, this has been a great podcast, Alex, it's given us so much information for any of the listeners who are trying to not get overwhelmed all at once to start learning about the blockchain. What advice would you give to them or any closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would say blockchain is a space that definitely rewards curiosity, community and collaboration, right? And so having something that you're passionate about as you're entering your learning journey around blockchain as a focusing lens, right? Whether that's identity or that's the environment or that's education or that's a particular cause you care about, finding use cases around blockchain in that space, I think makes it easier to learn about this. Finding a community local to you is going to be really important. I said before, blockchain is a community-driven effort. Leveraging those of us that have an active presence, like all of us do on LinkedIn and on Twitter. You know, the Life ID Foundation has a Twitter, LifeID underscore IO. We're on LinkedIn. We have, obviously, the website. Honestly, we're in a time in blockchain where there's a lot of openness. And so you can reach out to a stranger and say, I see you're pretty active in this space where do I begin? And more often than not, they're going to respond, right? So don't be afraid to reach out to any of us. We're happy to help. 
Definitely. And the thing that gets me excited about it, and maybe we can close, let me add a little addendum here is that for Nori, the thing that gets us excited is that you're able to pay someone for a new type of behavior that wasn't already being done. And there's lots of projects like that. In fact, I saw a supplement or a replacement for a government issued universal basic income. This is probably not enough money coming off of this, but it was like a step in the right direction, perhaps called Sweatcoin. Did you see that? No. It connects to your GPS and your Apple Health or whatever. And however many steps you get, you end up getting paid a certain number of coins for distances walked. So it's a way of monetizing this and getting people to be healthy in this public health kind of way. The coin obviously has no inherent value because no money has any inherent value. But these things will ultimately end up trading and some people will perceive value and you'll be able to have this be like a new form of value that was created out of nothing. And that's one of the things that gets us excited about it. It's very important for your token to focus on incentives and making sure people feel incentivized to do things that you're creating a new system for them to work through. How are you leveraging those incentives? How are you getting people to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do? Or do you not need to rely on that as much? No, actually, it's really important. We have the modern world and we need to transition to that next one. And in our case, how do we incentivize developers? to build our open source platform, to build out these new applications that leverage self-sovereign identity technology? How do we also enable users of the platform to have a say in the governance of this platform? And so tokens become really important for both of those. Are there ways to enable a certain percentage of transactions leveraging, say, the ID token to go towards developers who use the platform to build on, right? How do you bootstrap an environment? How do users actually vote on the evolution of the platform over time so that the governance isn't centralized and so that for self-sovereign identity to be self-sovereign, you need self-governance. And for self-governance, you need to enable an incentivization mechanism. And so tokens become important. I'm not super familiar on your model and what Nori tokens will accomplish. But for us, we see it as a central part of living up to the promise of self-sovereign identity technology. That's great. Yeah, one of our favorite examples is there's this town in Brazil that when people would pick up garbage, they would be paid a, like an alternative currency for it. This town was very broke. So merchants started accepting it. And all of a sudden, you had this broke town becoming like, actually, like they just created wealth out of nowhere. This became like a new currency instead of the Brazilian real, like out of nowhere. So that gets us really excited. But we should close it up. This is the time to do so. Would you agree with that sentiment? <laughs> As you look at me intensely. <laughs> yeah, I had to. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for being with us here, Alex. We should hang out some more and we should uh, come to some of these events that you're telling us about. And I would encourage anyone in the audience to do the same. Awesome. Thanks for having me, you guys. Take care.